Good evening, this is Peter Coleman uh, from Columbia, Columbia University. I um, have the pleasure to be interviewing t today, uh, this evening, Beth Fisher Yoshida, who is um, the uh, Executive Director of the Program and Negotiation and Conflict Resolution here at Columbia, and um, is my co-director of the consortium that sponsors these uh, interviews. Uh, and Beth um, has been working at or around Columbia for a long time now. Very long time. Uh, mm -hmm. Was associate director of the center I direct at Teachers College for a while, but now is running her own program um, and has been involved in some very interesting research um, in different places, but there's a specific project that she's been doing in Israel now for about, about 14 months. About 14 months now. So, um, so Beth, let's start by just uh, maybe telling the audience a little bit about who you are, how, what your training is, and how you got to, to Columbia. Okay. So my original career actually is in special education, and I used to work with children with learning disabilities, and that was at Columbia Teachers College. And then I lived in Japan for 13 years, and being a tough, independent New Yorker going to Japan, I met conflict head-on. So I said, hmm, intercultural communication is how I got involved in the area of conflict resolution. And then I worked for management consulting, became involved in negotiation, and when I came back to the U.S., I started consulting, and I worked at the U.N., and through the U.N., I was introduced into, back into Teachers College mm -hmm. and into the center, the mm -hmm. CR. And so I'd like to say that I've um, worked in conflict resolution for more than 20 years. I've been in conflict all my life, and that's how I sort of got into the field. So my entree into the field was definitely through intercultural communications and then looking at negotiation, especially in an organizational context. And then I went back to school for my doctorate in human and organizational systems from Fielding Graduate University because I wanted to get a solid theoretical foundation to what my practice was showing me. I didn't have one kind of organizing framework, and that sort of helped me organize things with more of a sociological and social psychological communication kind of interdisciplinary focus. So, and, and I know you've said to me in the past that you at some point decided that you, you didn't want to work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that there was enough <laughs> work being done on that, and it was the last place you wanted to go. And now you're working on the Israeli Absolutely. Post. I said, I will never work on that conflict. It's so complex. It's so ridiculous. If all these people couldn't do anything, what am I going to do about it? And then, and I had never been to Israel until last year. And now I've been there about eight times, which is kind of funny. But one of my colleagues is Israeli and knew about Ramli, the city, the mixed city in Israel where we're working. And he introduced me to it. And I said, okay, let's take a look. And if I don't think of it only as being this tremendous Middle Eastern-Israeli conflict, then it's more manageable. It's a community. So talk about Romley. What, uh, why did you start there? Why did you go there? So just to put the context of a bigger picture that we're doing is we have, uh, we're, develop we're part of a development of an interactive website, which is called Cosmopolis 2045. And that will launch in 2014. And the overarching goal for that is what if in the year 2045 people communicated in a different way? People were able to really respectfully disagree with each other, and they were able to really have a dialogic kind of communication style. And what if, for example, political you, discourse? Yes. Give us a sense. What is dialogic? What does it mean? So the fact that you can honor the point of view of the person and then still maintain your own point of view, but mm -hmm. have that space that you create where people can share points of view and agree to disagree, whatever. But it's not contentious. Mm -hmm. It's not disrespectful. It's not personal. It's about the ideas and so on. And mm -hmm. through a dialogic discourse, you can get to understand yourself and understand the other person better. Mm -hmm. 
And for example, in the U.S., the political discourse is really pathetic. Mm -hmm. It's that people really don't have any common ground. It's just parallel monologues and whoever can yell louder. So one of the sites that we're going to have in uh, Cosmopolis as well is Democracy Hall, so people can have more constructive kinds of political discourse. Mm -hmm. The pavilion we're working on is called Pavilion for Sustainable Peace. And so the Ramle Israel Project is one of the case studies that we're using inside of this pavilion. So uh, Cosmopolis is a, you said it's an interactive website for all different types of communications? There, yeah, so oh. there will be, so far there are at least 40 sites in development in this city. Anything from health to school to working with children to peace to politics to all, mm. all different things. Cafes and how do you go to a cafe and engage mm. with others and so on. So it's mm. a lot of interesting, exciting stuff. And, and where is that? How do people find that? Where, where does that? Well, it's not anything yet. It's just still conceptual. So uh -huh. uh, there are several of us working through the CMM Institute, which is the Coordinated Management of Meeting Institute, uh -huh. which takes a communication perspective. And the CMM Institute is the body that is sponsoring this. And I so I have a colleague at Syracuse University who's working on with web developers to develop it, and then people from all around the country and the world who mm. are contributing to Cosmopolis. And so your piece of it will be on peace building. Yes. Yeah. And so, and why Romley? Why did you end up there? So my colleague, Muli, who is Israeli, had been to Romley a few years before when he was working with the Martin Luther King Foundation. And they went there and visited, and the municipality was very receptive to people coming in and doing things with Romley. In fact, Romley is a sister city to Kansas City, and so mm -hmm. they have some projects going on with Kansas City as well. So Muli went back there in December 2011 and sort of laid the groundwork, and I went with him in February 2012, and that's when we started our project. And the reason Romley is so interesting is because it's one of the few mixed towns in Israel, and they have, at least on record, 51 different ethnic groups living coexisting inside of Bromley itself. Hmm. And there's about 60, I think, to 65,000 people there. So how how does Romley happen in a place like Israel? Because there there's so much segregation in, in, in Israel. How, why is it that this community isn't? Well, it depends on whose story you're telling. And you can go back to 1948, from mm -hmm. the independence of Israel, or the catastrophe, as some people call it. Right. And so um, it's a city where it's in dispute as who was there first, of course, uh -huh. which is part of the whole Middle East um, issue. So there, it's mixed because uh, there's a strong Arab population that remained in Romley and also mm -hmm. came back to Romley. And Romley is a place where many immigrants to Israel settle or are settled mm -hmm. in there. So it became a very mixed town. So everybody in Romley is an Israeli citizen. Yes. But they have different ethnic backgrounds. Yes. And, and is the ratio mostly Palestinian, mostly is Jewish? You no, know, I don't know the numbers, but I would say it's probably predominantly Jewish. Hmm. Okay. And there are different, uh, you know, there's Christians and Muslims and different sects of all that and uh -huh. many different kinds of Jewish ethnic groups as well. Uh-huh, okay. So you ended up going there because your colleague Muley had worked there in the past. You thought it was an interesting environment and that it might be a good place to do what? What we're trying to do is understand the community there and understand their challenges. And we feel that they know what they're doing very well. And we don't know what they're doing as well. But we do have different kinds of approaches and techniques and strategies that may enhance the work that they're doing. So now my pronunciation is probably not accurate, but it's Kushatot, which means rainbows in Hebrew. And that's the name of the municipal center where we work. And there they have community leaders, youth leaders, 
and different people who, and social workers who come in and gather together for different reasons and that's the group of people we're working with. Our thinking is that if we can develop certain kinds of skills and concepts in these people, then they can use that in their own lives and use it with the constituents they work with and then have a ripple effect where it'll spread out. We're not going to be able to work with everybody mm -hmm. in the community for multiple reasons. So that's who we work with there. So does, um, does the community work now? I mean, is it a community where there is a sense of harmony and understanding and tolerance or is there, are there tensions that exist there? Is it a microcosm of the bigger conflict? That It's interesting. Again, it depends on who you ask. And so at the second intifada, they said, well, we didn't have any problem in Ramla. It was very quiet. So mm. people are very proud of that. But mm -hmm. then if you talk to some other people, they say, yeah, well, but there's a lot of rumblings going on under the surface that are there. I think that it's very challenging for them to be a mixed city in Israel at this time, and it has been, but I think that some people are figuring out how to do it and how mm -hmm. to do it okay or how to do it well. Mm -hmm. But I say the majority probably could do it better, mm -hmm. and maybe not everybody has the same point of view about what's fair or what's not fair. So is it a mixed city um, in that there are different ethnic groups that live there, but they don't really interface with each other? They don't shop in the same places? They don't go to the same schools? Or are they really integrated? Well, again, you know, sorry, there's not, not, not one answer because uh, there are different neighborhoods, just like in New York. We have different neighborhoods where mm -hmm. people of majority, different ethnic groups live. I would say that the majority do not mix together, mm -hmm. that there are Jewish schools and there are um, non-Jewish schools mm -hmm. and there are private schools. And then you have an example, the market. The marketplace is mixed, Arabs and Jews and Muslims and Christians and everybody. And everybody's very proud of the market. And in fact, when I go back there next week, we're taking a trip to the market so we can hear the different narratives of the people we're working with, we have been working with for over a year, their perceptions, their take on the market and so on. Now, everybody's in that same place, but again, everybody has different stalls and I don't really know the quality of their interactions and how mm. much they get along or not, but they are coexisting in the same marketplace in Romley. So it's different levels of integration and tolerance and coexistence that people have. So let's just focus on the market. So you're going to mm -hmm. go there next week. And, yeah. and when you go in, what is your objective? Is your objective just to understand what's happening? Or is your objective to try to make it better or change it some way? So we're working with, as I mentioned, a core group of people. So now we have about 12 to 15 people we've been working with steady for the past at least six to eight months out of the 14 months. And these, these are, are the, the social workers, community leaders, youth leaders. From Romley, the, the mm -hmm. members of the community yes. there. Okay. So um, the majority, they live in Romley, or at least they work in Romley. Some live outside of Romley, but the majority are, are from Romley, work in Romley, and so on. So we've been teaching them different kinds of communication techniques, and we want to, and also how to entertain multiple perspectives at the same time and broaden their scope on how they see things and how they understand things and how they communicate with others. So we want them to share their perceptions with each other, because interestingly enough, even though we see them as a group, they're also a group of individuals who have had individual experiences, and some of them didn't know each other before they entered into the group with us, and some of them did. So we want them to explore their different narratives, maybe interact with some of the people in the marketplace, and then afterwards we'll go back and debrief what was the experience and try to overlay some of the concepts that we have been working with them on from a communication perspective to see what their take is on it and how there are different, perhaps, 
competing narratives with each other and maybe people are in sync with about it and so on and what does this mean and how can we learn from that marketplace to grow the part that's good into having a bigger community that works together well. So so a narrative is a someone's sense of the history of the place or the sense of the conflict? It could be history. It could be their opinions about things. It could be their values about things. It could be how they see their role in it, what it means to them. Because people have very different reactions. And they all insisted when I asked them, where should we go in Romley? They said, you must come to the marketplace. Hmm. And I'd been to the marketplace once before, but now I want to hear it from their perspectives and see it through their eyes, how Mm -hmm. they experience the marketplace. They're very proud of the marketplace. So my guest is Beth Fisher Yoshida, who is the director of the Negotiation and Conflict Resolution Program here at at, uh, Columbia University uh, and is talking about a project that she has been doing with her colleagues in Ramle in Israel, which is a mixed ethnic uh, community there, one of the few mixed ethnic communities there. Um, So you've worked there now for about 14 months, and is this a project that you wrap up in two years? Does it go on for the rest of your career? How do you see it moving forward? Not the rest of my career, but... Well, when we started it, we knew we'd be there for the long haul, but we didn't know what that meant. So I thought maybe three, five years, depending, because the goal was to really develop a core set of skills in a group of people that they can do, almost like a train-the-trainer kind of model, that they can then use with their groups and so on. So we've been there 14 months. I would say the first six months were really rocky. It was a lot of, a lot of false starts because we weren't quite sure what was going on and what we were doing. It was kind of like exploratory, and they were looking for something more definitive from us, like what are you doing, what do you want, what, what is the purpose of this project? And we were trying to say, well, the project is also what you want it to be. So there's a lot of back and forth about, but what does that mean? We don't know. So we had a lot of false starts, and there were two things that helped us shift and really make a change. Well, maybe three things. Wait a minute, before the two things. Yes. What does Rocky look like? Does that mean that they get pissed off and they feel like they're wasting their time, or what? Um, what does a little bit of everything. A mm-hmm. little bit, yeah, a little bit of everything. Because, yeah. um, in general, people from that part of the world are very expressive in how <laughs> they uh, tell you how they feel about things, right. and so there was a lot of expressiveness there, <laughs> and not always smooth. And then sometimes I was thinking, you know, I had goals to achieve a certain amount, and we achieved a fraction of the amount, but there were mm. other things that were happening that were also interesting and valuable. So we had a very uh, snaky kind of path that wasn't straight by any means. So you had a plan, and it just wasn't rolling that way. We had an idea of a plan, and then as soon as we <laughs> just trash the plan and just work with what you got. But okay. then they wanted to see a plan, and at the same time we tried to have a plan, they also didn't want to follow the plan. So uh-huh. then we tried to co-create the plan, but that wasn't firm enough for them. They wanted us to have the So we went in circles <laughs> okay. a little bit. Okay. The th- three things happened. One is we became more familiar with each other. So trust started to build, I think, in the relationship. The second is, very critically, we hired a coordinator on the ground there. Hmm. And that was really critical because people needed to be reminded. Because we were going back every two months, which is not necessarily ideal. It's better Mm -hmm. to have more frequent meetings. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they also couldn't make more frequent meetings because they had full-time work and so on. Mm -hmm. So we hired a coordinator who was was fluent in Hebrew and English and spoke some Arabic and was able to connect with people and keep them keep them uh, like with this project on their radar screen and also mm-hmm. keep them coming and attending and so on. That person is a member of the community as well? Person is um, not a member of Romley, uh-huh. but had uh, visited Romley and, had, and is American, but had, has an Israeli parent and has been to Israel mm-hmm. for his whole life mm-hmm. every summer. And then the third thing was we hired simultaneous interpreters, and that Mm. made a world of difference because I was depending on my colleague to translate, and it wasn't accurate, and people getting frustrated, and 
it just wasn't going. And then there were some people who, most people that we were working with are fluent in English, but mm -hmm. some people were not, and it just wasn't smooth. So with the coordinator and the familiarity and the interpreters, you interp just, they interpret in, they translate in uh, Arabic and Hebrew. Well, not Arabic. We only do it in Hebrew and English because everybody there speaks Hebrew. Everybody speaks Hebrew. And most Hebrew. people okay. speak English because uh -huh. Hebrew is the official language uh -huh. of Israel. Right. And we're not working in a predominantly Arab area, which is something we're hoping to do going forward. Then we will have a different combination of interpreters. We'll also include Arabic. So of your 12 or 14 um, community members you work with, are there Arabic members of the community? There are Arab members, but I would say it's a smaller percentage, maybe 25 to 35% are Arab. And they speak Hebrew or English? Yes. Uh -huh. okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so those three, th then it just turned it around, and then we really started to make progress, and people really started to connect, and we really started to build. And the other thing that happens is people come in and out. You know, you may say, mm. okay, we're going to be at the two days, this time to this time, and then you have people showing up one day, people coming one time, they don't come the next visit, maybe mm -hmm. they come, or suddenly they show up three visits later. Right. So you have to keep kind of like cycling back and building some people started to say, hey, we have something going on here. We have a group. You can't just come in now. So we realized, oh, they are starting to feel mm -hmm. like there's a group and some progress is being made. Mm -hmm. So it was a kind of a, I had to redefine progress and I had to redefine mm -hmm. success as we went through. What does that mean? And I had to let go of everybody being there the whole time and just sort of work with what we could and what mm -hmm. we had. So 14 months into a four or five year project, um, do you have a vision of if this worked, what would happen? Yes, like. so the first part of the project is that we work with them at Kushatot, the community center. They come together and so on, and we learn about them. Ideally, they do work on their own in between visits. That doesn't always happen. Now we're into it, the next phase. What yeah. just, so what is work on your own? What work on their own would mean when we say, okay, here's a, what we've been practicing together today. Now try to use this with your client to, and then come back and tell us how it worked. Mm -hmm. And people come back and then they're like, oh, I, don't, I don't know, whether they did it or not or they have nothing to report. Uh -huh. So they just sort of, after they left, they sort of went dispersed to their own But these are like communications work. exercises yes. that they're going through yes. and so you, you ask them to... Yes. Try those out. And certain them. kind of models that they could actually use with their clients. Mm -hmm. For example, there's a daisy model, and, they, and it's about identity, and you put yourself in the center, and on the different petals around the daisy, you write down the different roles that you have in your life, and you write down the significant influences in your life. So it's a tool that they use for themselves and with each other, and it's something they could easily use, especially like if you're a social worker, you could use that mm -hmm. with your client. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So they didn't do that. So now we're in the second phase, but now we're going outside of the community center. That's why we're going to the market. And we're also going to a community called Jorish. Jorish is an Arabic community, and um, it has a mixed reputation. And so we're going to explore that with somebody who is our, our tour guide from, who's going to show us the different parts of Jorish. What does mixed reputation mean? Well, Ramle itself has different kind of image that um, it has a stigma to it. And this is one of the issues that people in Ramle have. When you go anywhere around Israel, if you mention, they asked me, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm working in Ramle. They said, Ramallah? I said, no, not Ramallah, Ramle. So first they confuse it with Ramallah. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, oh, many people say, oh, Romley, why would you want to work there? And so I don't have that feeling because I don't know. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, you know, it's so dangerous. And then some people will say, oh, Romley, that's the place with the prisons. And I think there are four or five prisons in Romley area. 
None of them had the name Romley in it, but that's how people associate it. Mm. So people in Romley are stigmatized, and they feel that Romley has a stigma to it, and they feel it's a wonderful place. It's about 20 minutes outside of Jerusalem, 20 minutes outside of Tel Aviv. It's wonderfully located and so on and so forth. They really enjoy the richness of the community, but people from outside of Romley have a little bit of an attitude about it. Well, mm. Juarish within Romley has a worse reputation maybe drugs, maybe crime, and so on. And so whether it's true or not, I can't say. I just know that's the image that people have of the area. I see. So you're going to go in there? uh, We're going to go there and explore and just look at it. I was there once before, a year ago, February. And now we're going to go back again to look at the narratives and the stories people have and why does this area have that kind of image and what is it about the area and how can we change the image if that's something that's worth doing. People had said they want to change the image of Romley, so maybe people want to change the image of Jorish. So you'll go in with the same 12 or 14 folks you've been yes. working with yes. to this neighborhood and then engage with others there? Is that Well, definitely with our tour guide from uh-huh. a local person in, in um, Jorish, uh-huh. and I'm not sure who else we'll be talking to. It's up to him and uh-huh. who we engage with. Uh-huh. Got it. So... Um, so that's the next trip, mm-hmm. right? And then after that, the third phase would be where we actually go in and work with them at their sites, at their work sites. So mm-hmm. maybe I can work with a social worker with some of her clients or work with her about how to work with her clients. We're working with people from the municipality, from the engineering department. And um, one thing that's very interesting there is in the engineering department, one of the things they do is they give permits for building. Mm-hmm. So people have to come there, they have to get a permit, they have to fill out certain forms, they have to pay a certain fee, and then they're allowed or not allowed to build or make some changes, as mm-hmm. we do here. Yeah. So when you have people coming to the engineering department, they may be turned down, and the reasons they're turned down could be very logistical. Well, you didn't have all the forms or you didn't have the fee, but depending on who's turned down, they have different interpretations of why they were turned down. Mm-hmm. So it's really rich to hear about these stories, and then we start to work on perceptions. If it's a Jewish person being turned down, I'm just overgeneralizing mm-hmm. here, many times people feel, okay, I didn't have the right form or so on. But sometimes for Arabs who are turned down, they take it more like, this is because I'm Arab. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, again, it doesn't happen to everybody, but these are the stories and the frustrations that some of the people from the engineering department have shared with us. Because most of the people that work there as bureaucrats are Jewish. Yes. Right. Okay. So people have different perceptions of why they're turned down. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're saying, no, you're turned down because you don't have the form. Mm -hmm. Now, that may or may not be true. I don't know. Maybe people don't have a form and maybe some people are helped to have the form and some are not helped and Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, on. But they're mm -hmm. just interesting perceptions of their everyday life there. So your, your hope ultimately is that these processes, these conversations you have with people, which help kind of unpack their perceptions and their assumptions, uh, creates in them a capacity to better understand. Absolutely. And, and to therefore better live together. And you think that that will trickle up and help the Israeli-Palestinian problem? Or do you think it uh, uh, is more likely to just stay local? I think it's local. At the same time, I think if you keep doing all these efforts, local, 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 you develop a critical mass, then it becomes something bigger than it is. Mm -hmm. And I cease to be amazed at how so many times in so many contexts, the simplest, what I, it's not a simple thing to do, but a simple thing is listening to people, Mm -hmm. really listening to understand. I can't underestimate how important that is. Mm-hmm. And I, lo- I I know it's important, but I lose sight of how important it is, and then I get reminded again and again and again about listening. Mm-hmm. So something like that and how to listen 
differently to people mm -hmm. and how to bracket your judgment and put it on the side and really listen from an open space in a dialogic fashion mm -hmm. is really critical. So I'm not going to say that this is going to resolve the Middle East issue and the sure. Palestinian-Israeli issue. Yet if people really took the time to listen to understand and realize that they're people just like them and they have similar frustrations in their lives as they do, right. that maybe they can come together to create something better. Plus, so, Ramleh is also very famous historically. They have a lot of um, things, places that could be excavated. So there could be some really fabulous joint projects that people could do together to separate themselves from the conflict and work together on some constructive, cooperative project that then they could learn from how to cooperate more effectively with each other. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you a question about listening. How are we doing in time? We have five minutes. <laughs> right, thanks. Just about. Um, so... I get the importance of listening. That seems to be fundamental to most peace-building conflict, you know, understanding the other side, understand, taking your own responsibility. Um, you had said earlier that the populations that live in this environment tend to be much more expressive. Um, and so my question, I guess, is, you know, is listening a cultural thing? And are there different ways to listen? Are there different ways to communicate and engage? And because you're in this multi-ethnic space, um, where the cultural differences and the ethnic differences are so important, um, does listening look different from one group to the next? And how do you manage that? Yes, I think it looks different. I'll give one example. So there were two women. You know, when we use the interpreters, we have to use a microphone. So mm. it's almost like a talking stick. So the microphone gets passed around. Mm -hmm. And we usually have like two microphones floating around the group. And the good news is that there's a microphone so that people are limited in who can talk, how many people can talk at the same time. So we had these two women who um, were both Jewish, and they were talking, and uh, one person was saying something, and the other person was then immediately grabbing the mic and then saying something, and they went back and forth and back and forth until there were like four hands on the microphone pulling it back and forth from each person's mouth. And I sat there watching this, and then I, I said, okay, and I just said, can we just stop for a minute? And then I processed, let me just tell you what I'm observing. Because mm -hmm. I don't, and then when I was hearing what they were saying, it did not sound to me like they were listening to each other to understand. They were listening to refute the other point of view. Sure. So they said to me, you know, no, 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 this is okay. We're friends. We're, we know each other very well. We can do this. Sure. And I said, okay. And then we were, I was trying to process that impact with on the rest of the group and what did this look like. Mm. So from my point of view, it did not look like they were listening. Sure. And I think that even though that was a very comfortable behavior they had with each other, mm -hmm. they also became aware that maybe we could have slowed down the process. And this mm -hmm. is something I think really helps for this particular group of people, mm -hmm. slowing down the process, mm -hmm. pausing a little bit more, and really stopping to listen and soak in what the other person is saying before jumping back. Mm -hmm. So I had them do an activity where before they could answer, they had to paraphrase what the person said and then add their comment, linking it to what the person said before. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a little bit painful for them to do that, but it slowed down the process and really enforced that listening is important. Sure. I have a question, actually. You're talking about communities and, and I guess, families and friends and things, but I'd like to know if you see any changes and shifts within certain generations, and is gender a difference? Are, are there certain demographics that show the most promise in overcoming these conflicts? Well, in this particular group of people, most of them are, I guess, in their late 20s and 30s, but at the beginning, we also had some people who were more senior and um, 
in one way, you might think that younger people have more flexibility in their thinking because they haven't thought that way as long as somebody who's older. Yet in my experience there, really, I don't see one pattern as youth or gender or age or about who is more flexible and more receptive. I think it depends on the individual because you have young people who are flexible and then young people who are very, very set in their ways in this community that I've worked with and uh, some senior people who have been part of the peace process for many years and try to uh, have a little bit more flexibility in their thinking. So, nope, don't see a pattern. <laughs> and then finally, how is there, how, are, how have they received having American help? Is there a stigma with that? Well, I think that actually, to be quite honest, they're, they're excited about, not, not me personally, but they're excited about America and uh, Columbia University being there and doing something and taking an interest in them. So that curiosity allowed me to enter into that community, I think, and then start to build a relationship with them and build trust. So, um, Beth, your project on Ramla has uh, information available on it on, on the website, yes? It does, on the AC4 website. Which um, we'll have to, have to give you, but it's, uh, if, you, if you search AC4 uh, at Columbia, you'll come to the website right. of the Advanced Within Consortium. Within the Earth Institute. Yeah, and we have the information on WKCR.org as well. So Very we good. We'll be tweeting about it, we promise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you can go there for information about the Rumla Project and about the Cosmopolis Absolutely. I- uh, development of the website. Um, so a takeaway. Is there uh, something fundamental that you feel like you have started to see, started to feel in your work there s- thus far? Mm-hmm. So two things. Have a plan but be willing to change your plan and to co-create the plan with whoever you're working with. And the second thing is that people anywhere really benefit from, they feel the benefit from being able to really get along with other people and understand them in a way that they hadn't understood them before. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, thank you for telling your story, and, uh, and we'll talk to you again. Thank you very much. Okay.